is Friday, February 23rd. This is the Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and something's rattling in here. I really want to be driving my mom and dad's nice, fancy, newer car, but I don't know what I did with their key fob. I'm pretty sure it's in one of my pants pockets, or jacket pockets, maybe sitting in my dryer. So that thing's stuck there until I find the key. It may be one of those times where I offer my kids $5 to find something. It rarely works, but the low risk, high reward. Do you ever do this to your kid? Hey, first one to find this gets $5, because I don't want to look for it. $5 is a lot of money to a kid. I guess it still is. I mean, you can't even eat at McDonald's for $5 now if you get like a meal. It's crazy. It's crazy. Somebody, don't write in and ask me about a biblical view of inflation because I won't be able to explain it from the Bible. Other than that we live in a fallen world. How about that? I have a full show for you today. Today's show title is The Watchtower and the Resurrection. Since we are in the uh, Matthew chapter 28, and we're right here where the angel tells the Marys that Jesus uh, is risen, I thought, why don't we take a look, since this show is supposedly supposed to be about Christian apologetics, why don't we take a look at what the cults believe and some false beliefs that you'll face when you're trying to defend the faith against people or from people like that or trying to witness to them. I have a I have a question in the inbox about I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is the question that came in. It's about Alistair Begg and church discipline. Okay? So I'll I'll address that question. And let me apologize to Rendell. Rendell, I skipped you. Rendell sent in a question before the one I'm about to address about the parable of the wicked steward. And I had to leave my office really fast. I just jotted down my show notes in a hurry because I have to take my son to basketball, or not basketball, baseball practice tonight. So I got to get home, grab him, and drive over there. I barely have enough time to be on time. So I didn't have time to really think over and formulate a good answer to Rendell's question because Rendell's question's a little more in-depth because I think the parable of the wicked steward confuses a lot of people and I want to address those misconceptions and what's confusing about it, what the parable is about, what the lesson that we're supposed to take from it is. But, I, you know, I need five minutes to put those thoughts together. So I, didn't, I did not cover that one. Oh my gosh, somebody's in front of me is going slow with your Mary Kay sticker. I don't know. I wonder if Mary Kay is as popular now since people do Rodan and Fields. Does Rodan and Fields have makeup? Or is it just like moisturizer and stuff like that? Vanity! Maybe I'll do a show on church ladies selling Rodan and Fields and how vain they are. Spending $100 on little bottles of moisturizer because they're 41 trying to look 32. <sighs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe I've already done that show. But anyway, sorry, Rendell. I skipped your question. I'll get to it um, hopefully Tuesday. 
I might get to it Thursday because this question is a two-parter. I'm so appreciative of the person who wrote in this question and had a, a, two questions about sort of the same thing and broke them out into two. I'm very appreciative of that. But let's get to the Bible chapter review. Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 through 7. When we last left the text in verse 4, the guards had fainted because they were terrified of the angel and the stone had been rolled away and the Marys had showed up to see the grave and they're met with an angel sitting there on the rock and the guards fainted. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus, who had been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, by the way, speaking synoptically, when we're talking about the synoptic Gospels, this is the point where Mark ends. Right here. It's done. The women see the angel at the empty tomb, and they're scared, and that's it. It's over. But Matthew is going to go on for a few more verses and give us the Great Commission. So what's going on here? The the angel knows that the women are going to be afraid of him too. A lot of times when, when somebody comes across an angel in scripture, a lot of times they are terrified. And the angels have to say, don't be afraid. And he tells the women, listen, I know you're here to see Jesus. He's risen. Not just he's risen, he's not here for he has risen. What? Just as he said he would. That this happens at the end of Matthew. It should not be a surprise to the reader. Because the whole time in the book, not the whole time, but towards the end, Jesus is saying, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise. He tells Peter that. Peter doesn't even like it. But he tells Peter that. He says he's going to tear down the building and raise it again in three days. Tear down the temple. Talking about himself. Right before here, the chief priest said, that deceiver said, he's going to rise. Let's guard the tomb so they don't steal the body. What happens? Jesus rises, and the angel reminds the women, just as he said he would. Now, now he gives them a task, something to do. Go tell his disciples what has happened. And the angel tells them, Jesus is going ahead of them into Galilee and they're going to see him again. So now they have an expectation to see the risen Christ and a mission to pass on the message to Jesus' disciples. And with that, we'll end the Bible chapter review. And we will go to this question all the way from California, all the way from the valley in California, Fresno, California. This, come, this question comes from Reed. And Reed's question is if prominent leaders, Christian leaders he means, such as John MacArthur, are not calling for formal church discipline for the type of unrepentant sin in which Alistair Begg is engaging, won't that lead to a trickle-down effect where church members 
take Ale Alexander's Begg's advice, start going to gay weddings, and they don't have any church discipline for it. That was Reed's question. I think I'm paraphrasing it pretty close. So when Reed says this type of unrepentant sin, he's referring to Alistair Begg pastorally advising a woman to go to a gay-slash-transgender quote-unquote wedding and give a gift. Okay. Not only giving that sinful advice, it's not just bad advice, it's sinful advice, not only giving that sinful advice, when challenged on it, instead of repenting and saying, oh man, I was wrong, forgive me and allow me to correct myself, he doubled down, if not tripled down, and said, nope, I'm not changing my mind on this. You can take me off the radio, I'm not going to change my mind. You can take me off the, he didn't, he didn't say that, but he, he did with so many words. You can take me away from Shepherd's Conference, the Shepherd's Conference lineup, I'm not going to change my mind. He is doubling and tripling down, sticking to it. Now this sin has been outright condemned. Reed sent me a video. You guys could Google it if you want to. Somebody asked John MacArthur a question about this. And John MacArthur says, listen, I've been friends with Alistair Begg for 45 years. I've pushed his, his son around in a baby carriage. That's how long I've known him. And the son's grown. And I hate that he's going to be known for this after 45 years of ministry, but you know, he's wrong. This is just not the kind of advice people should should be giving. He's, he's wrong. So John MacArthur said he was wrong, but Reed goes a step further. He says, well, why is it John MacArthur calling for church discipline? And if he doesn't, won't people start doing this? And, uh, and there'll be no church discipline. And all of a sudden you'll have Christians everywhere going to quote-unquote gay weddings. My answer to that, Reed, is I, I don't know. If, I w if, I, if you had me as an expert witness in theology in a court of law and you asked me that on the stand, I'd, and, and I would say, I, and the lawyer would probably say, objection, speculative. It's speculative. I, I don't know. I can't say what will happen. I can give my opinion. And like I said, I don't like to give my opinion on this show, just what I think about something. But you asked. Number one, I don't think that church members across different churches will start doing this because Alistair Begg recommended it. Because even the grandmother who asked Begg about it, you could tell she knew that, that it was wrong. She was looking for the pastor to sort of give her some permission to go, I think. Like, she didn't just go. She had to ask a pastor first. She had some reservation about going. So I think church members intuitively are going to think something's wrong, something's not right here. Right? And they're going to ask. And people aren't going to see, I don't think church members are going to see Alistair Begg do that and think, well, now I'm going to do it. Why? Because Alistair Begg got roundly criticized by like every evangelical blogger and talking head and prominent pastor and radio person that I can think of. He got taken off of American Family Radio for a minute. He got disinvited from Shepcon. Bloggers like me and Samuel Say and Denny, I think Denny Burke, and I'm just name somebody. He got blown up for being how wrong he was. So I don't think that Alistair Begg's bad advice 
is necessarily going to cause all these church members to say, well, as Trebek said it, it must be okay, because there was a lot of prominent disagreement. Now, some people might say, oh, well, he wasn't really condemned that much by his big-time friends. Maybe it's okay. Some people might say that. Again, I don't know. That's speculation. But I'll tell you this. Why in the world, this is a question, why in the world would John MacArthur call for church discipline of Alistair Beck? He's a Baptist. John MacArthur is a Baptist. You guys, you can't insist on members of other churches getting church discipline. Because you don't have Matthew 18 standing to go to that church and say that person's in sin and go through the process of Matthew 18, which ends in what? Taking the person before the church. So John MacArthur is a Baptist. Why would he call for Alistair Begg to be disciplined? Now, if you asked him in an abstract question, should someone who advises somebody, to, should a pastor who, who advises somebody to go to a gay wedding be put under church discipline if they won't repent? Or should someone who goes to a church, to, uh, a gay wedding be put under church discipline if they won't repent? I mean, you could ask uh, John MacArthur that. Abstractly, I think he'd say yes. But John MacArthur doesn't have any authority, no matter how prominent he is and how well-respected he is and how good of friends with Alistair Beck he is. John MacArthur doesn't have any authority at Alistair Beck's church. To put Alistair Beck under church discipline would fall to any given member of his church. Now, talk about being speculative. I bet you a million dollars that won't happen. There might be a church member at his church who goes to him and talks about it. And there might be that guy who finds two or three. But do you think that those people have, who've been pastored by Alistair Begg and are pastored now by Alistair Begg for years and years and accepted him being a, a gospel coalition guy and accepted him saying that women could preach and accepted him going to Baylor to preach with Beth Moore and Tony Evans. Do, do you think that those people are going to have the, the discernment and not only that, but the metal, the guts, the majority of that church anyway, to put Alistair Begg under church discipline? There's no way that's going to happen. If the shepherd is leaving the sheep, leading the sheep wrongly, the, the sheep are li uh, likely going to have the wrong thoughts. And not only that, I bet there's people who go to Alistair Begg's church who think, think he's wrong and don't understand that it's a sin and it's not a matter of, of Christian conscience, but a matter of, of sin and, and church discipline. I bet, there's, I bet there's a lot of people there like that. Me being speculative again. But I don't think there's going to be a trickle-down effect that's going to happen at all these other churches because Alistair Begg's not the, the pastor at that church. The, your concern, my Baptist friend, I assume you're a Baptist if you listen to this podcast, should be is what's going to happen at your local church. If somebody did that at my local church, I'd be on them like stink on a monkey. All right? They, they wouldn't get home from the reception. What were you doing there? That's a sin. You know? And by the way, church discipline for anything hardly ever happens, but but I think if that kind of thing happened 
at Grace Community Church, which is John MacArthur's church, that that church discipline would be in order. And this is where you have to ask yourself, Reed, judging the health of your church or assessing the health of your own church is, if this thing happened at my church, would church discipline happen? And if the person didn't repent, would the person be kicked kicked out? Or would people be okay with it? That's where the the Baptist, that's that's where Baptist ecclesiology takes us. Like we don't have to police the world. Now, yes, I do think it is important for people who have ministered publicly in a parachurch way with Alistair Beck. John MacArthur and the type of people who go to preaching conferences with him and have promoted him, I think it is important for those people to say, hey, he's wrong and I don't approve of this. And now John MacArthur has come out and said it. He was pretty clear. It wasn't real clear when uh, Beg got disinvited from Shepherd's Conference, but somebody asked MacArthur directly and he gave a direct answer. So in Baptist world, Reed, I don't think every prominent Baptist pastor needs to come out and say, Beg, you put him under church discipline. What, what are they going to do? Call Beg's church? You should put that guy under church discipline. Thanks for your suggestion, click. My across-the-street neighbors go to Crosspoint. Whycrosspoint.com. All right. If I caught my neighbor red-handed out kissing another woman, out, you know, like if he was in Dalton, because I work in Dalton, if I saw him at a restaurant in Dalton, loved up and snuggled up on some other woman and kissing her, and like, oh man, you're you're committing adultery. All right. I'm not a member of Cross Point. By the way, they don't have members. It's not my place to go in there and say, hey, cross pointers, you need to put this guy under church discipline. He's a member of your church. I don't have any standing there. That's their church. Now, by the way, why did I bring that up? Not just to make a point about how Baptist ecclesiology works, but to make a point about how cross point doesn't have uh, formal church membership. Therefore, it can't do church discipline in a biblical way, and therefore it probably doesn't. And when you see a church like that, it's probably useless to suggest so how about this? Let's think of a different church. Tabernacle Baptist, okay? They have formal membership. If I saw my friend Scott, who uh, goes to Tabernacle Baptist, if I saw my friend Scott out cheating on his wife, first of all, I would go up to him and be like, hey, stop it. Stop it right now. Go home to your wife and never talk to this woman again. Not because of any formal church discipline thing, because that's just the right thing to do, because that's a guy I know claims the name of Christ. Okay? I need to keep him accountable. Okay? That's biblical. But, am I going to call Tabernacle and say, Hey, you need to do this. I might talk to somebody who's a member of Tabernacle and say you need to handle this, but they don't have to listen to me. I don't have any right. I'm certainly not going to get on the... (laughs) On, on the internet and formally call it out, Tabernacle, you got to do something. Now, somebody might differentiate that and say, well, that's just public and private sin, and, and Beg's just not your friend Scott. Beg is, Beg is uh, a big-time preacher, blah, blah, blah. 
So I'll say this, Reed, you and I and probably John MacArthur would probably all agree that begs should be put under church discipline, but I don't think it is incumbent upon John MacArthur to call for beg to be put under church discipline because church discipline can only happen at the local church and John MacArthur doesn't have any authority there. Nobody has any authority there except for the few hundred members of that local church. Thank you for sending that question in. If you have a question about Christian theology or apologetics, please send it to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you want to help get the word out about goat churches like Cross Point City Church in Cartersville, Rome in Adairsville, and Rockbridge Community Church in Dalton, Calhoun, Ringgold, Chatsworth, and Hickson, Tennessee, you can donate to the cause at my PayPal my Venmo, or my Patreon. Christian Commute is, I think it's Christian Commute Patreon and Christian Commute uh, on PayPal. My Venmo is just my name. You can find me. And you can give me money and I can buy Facebook ads for that or billboards for that. So people go to whycrosspoint.com and whyrockbridge.com and whatever why goat church websites I'll create in the future. Alright, here we go. The Watchtower and the Resurrection. The Watchtower and the Resurrection. Alright. When the women go to the tomb to find the body of Jesus, is the body there? No. The angel makes it quite clear. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said he would. Risen from the dead. And he says, see look where he was laying. In other words, that body ain't there. It did not rot in the tomb. The body's not there. This is basic Christianity. Everybody gets this. But the watchtower, that false church, that cult, that has a false gospel and a false Jesus, they will not tell you right away that they reject this. You have to ask them. Some new members, new recruits to the watchtower, out publishing, coming to your house to to tell you about the watchtower, some of them don't even know. But it's the official position of the watchtower that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead bodily. Rather, it was a spiritual resurrection. First of all, and this is weird, I don't know why they teach that, I don't know what difference it was make. They say that Jesus was crucified not on a cross, but a stake. And they're pretty adamant about that. I don't think you can get that from the Bible. I could hazard a guess as why they want to say he was crucified on a stake because they're, what, what the Watchtower does is rejects the visible church. When the Watchtower was founded by Charles Taze Russell, he was rejecting all the denominations in his day. And all of them had crosses on the building. The Methodists, the Catholics, the Baptists. I mean, all, church, churches are known by having crosses. It's not required of the Bible to have a cross on your church building or have a cross on your t-shirt or your necklace. But it used to be when you went into a town, if you wanted to identify the church building, it was the one with a cross on top. It's a symbol of Christianity, culturally. 
Ooh, a rainbow. Oh, wow, that is one of the most complete rainbows I've ever seen. And it reminds me uh, of the promise to Noah. Not a bunch of sodomy, but God's promise to Noah and all of mankind in the Noahic covenant. Sometimes you see a half rainbow. I mean, that is a perfect ground-to-ground rainbow. All right. I was talking about the stake. Yes. Ooh. Is that a Woodstock City Church sticker? Let me look at them. Oh, you poor souls. Poor unfortunate souls. Poor unfortunate souls. Let me tell you this. If let me do a rabbit trail. I just saw a squirrel. Now I'm chasing her. Now I'm chasing the squirrel. If you watch The Little Mermaid and you listen to Ursula sing that song, Poor Unfortunate Souls, and and she wants Ariel to become one, they're the people who did not like what that what was available to them, so they went to the Sea Witch because they weren't satisfied with their lives. When you go to an Andy Stanley church, you're not satisfied. You want something more than the Bible provides for you in a church. You want to have your ears tickled, you want to be entertained, and you go to Andy Stanley Church and you're a poor, unfortunate soul. And you're better off with an octopus witch than Andy Stanley. Alright, why did Ursula have an octopus bottom when all the people had fishtail bottoms? Anybody ever thought of that? Is she a separate species? I don't know. Alright, that's a, now I'm tasting the squirrel off the squirrel of the squirrel rabbit trail. Let me get back to Jehovah's Witnesses and the stake. So they'll say Jesus was crucified on a stake. That's that's them saying we reject the cross and visible Christianity. I mean, Paul even says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It says the cross! It's not a torture stake. And here is their teaching about Jesus. Their teaching about Jesus is that, this is Arianism, he is the Archangel Michael. And he's the first created being that God the Father, Jehovah, created. Jehovah is not God's name. It's Yahweh. We really don't even know what that sounds like. But we do know they have a J. Yahweh. So they're like, yeah, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. We got the name right. No, you don't. No, you don't. And Jehovah, they say, the first being he created was the Archangel Michael. And it was Michael who became Jesus. So Michael was a spirit being who became the man Jesus. And when Jesus died, the resurrection is somehow spiritual or metaphorical. And Michael, him rising, was not literally in his body rising where he has a resurrection body today. Basically going back to his spirit form as Michael. I ask you this. Is that what the Bible says in Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7? Is that what you get from a plain reading of Scripture? Is that what you get from a critical reading of Scripture? That's what they're going to tell you. And you need to be able to you need to be able and be prepared to defend your faith from false claims like this. It was a denial of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. If, there's, if the dead are not raised. We are still in our sins. The dead are not raised. We are still in our sins. And you got to think. 
What were the chief priests guarding? Or I guess, what did they hire the guards or get the guards from Pilate to guard? The body of Jesus. It's clear from the text that their expectation was that Jesus' resurrection prophecy was that he would rise in his body, not spiritually, with his body still there. That was not the promise. And that was not the prediction that Jesus made. And that was not that was what was not understood. Or that that was not what was understood by the chief priests who wanted to guard him. They thought Jesus was talking about a bodily resurrection. And so did all the other second temple Jews. Because they had a eschatological belief in the resurrection. It's well known among their culture. Not to ignorant people like Charles Taze Russell, but to people who actually study the Bible and the history of the culture in which it was written and in which Jesus and the disciples lived and the apostles lived. He is not here. And by the way, what kind of prophecy is saying that you're going to spiritually resurrect? Okay, I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to die on the cross. By the way, that's easy to predict. If you wanted to die on a Roman cross, walk into Jerusalem and proclaim yourself the Messiah and the King of the Jews. See if that doesn't rustle ruffle some feathers and get you crucified. If you look how Jesus acted in verses 26 and 25, like how he walked in and acted, that's basically asking to get yourself crucified, okay? That's not hard to say, I'm going to go over here and act like this and I'm going to get crucified. All right, check. All right, he got that. But saying you're going to rise again afterward, that's a big deal. That's a massive claim that's going to re- require massive evidence. Saying that, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be resurrected spiritually. That's not what Jesus was arguing. But that's what the watchtower would have you believe, that, his, that they, they're, his, they're the faithful slave. That's what they'll tell you. The good and faithful servant, the faithful slave. They'll tell you they're the faithful slave and that they are his witness on earth. And this is what Jesus meant, this spiritual resurrection. Forget that he's supposed to be Michael. This is what Jesus meant, this, this spiritual, not bodily resurrection. What kind of, why would he even predict that? What kind of prediction is that? What does that prove to anybody? Now I got the watchtower coming to tell me that the Jesus is spiritually uh, spiritually resurrected, just like y'all went around after 1918 saying he returned, but he was invisible. You just take your word for it. Jesus said he was going to give the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Jonah was swallowed by the whale. He was in the belly of the whale or the fish. Jonah was swallowed by the fish. He was in the belly of fish for three days. The fish coughed him up. Did the fish cough up a spirit Jonah who didn't who was ethereal? Or did the fish cough up a Jonah who walked around and talked to people? He walked around and talked to people. He went to Nineveh and told them to repent. And they did. So when you think about the big prophecy, the big claim that Jesus was going to make. It's not really a big claim to say you come back as a ghost. It's a big claim to say you're going to rise again. Why would Jesus predict that he was going to come back as a ghost? 
That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to the reader of Scripture. It doesn't make sense to the people who are, who are being portrayed and written about in Scripture. It just doesn't make sense. But that's what the Watchtower tells you. And think about what a wicked organization is going to do. They're going to get you to deny the resurrection, deny the cross, deny the resurrection. The very thing heretics and schismatics and false teachers have been doing since the days when they started to write the New Testament. Paul was dealing with people who denied the resurrection. And Jehovah's Witnesses are people who deny the resurrection by def defining it as something else. Be ready to have that conversation. And listen, when you have that conversation, they're going to start trying to jump around to a bunch of different scriptures. Say, now let's, can we keep this, just do it like this. Let's talk about this subject. And let's talk about it from Matthew. In these verses, doing a vertical reading of Matthew from these scriptures. Is it clear to everybody that they're expecting a, a bodily resurrection? Is it clear to you that predicting a non-bodily resurrection is not a big deal. Is it clear to you that the angels say, come see where he was? Is it clear to you that bodies do not deteriorate the two days or three days after they die? And this is all without addressing the Arianism, the idea that Michael was Jesus. All without addressing that. And if you can get them to see this one thing that might be the little little domino or card that knocks the house of cards, that is the watchtower, right down. But listen, don't just knock down their card tower without dealing them another hand, and that hand is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that's the ultimate trump card, the rook card, whatever you call it, can't be beat. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Repent and believe. And with that, I'm going to end the Christian commute for today. Thank you guys for sending in your questions. Lord willing, I'll get to them Tuesday. As always, God bless. And always remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved.